Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Anthropology. I am Sneha Navarapu, the host of this channel. Today, I'm so pleased to have with us Professor Jonathan Perry, Emeritus Professor of Anthropology at the London School of Economics. Professor Perry's book, Classes of Labor, Work and Life in an Indian Steel Town, was published in 2019 by the Social Science Press and in 2020 by Routledge. I'm also very thrilled to have a guest on today's show. We have with us today Professor John Harris, an an emeritus professor of international studies at Simon Fraser University. Thanks, Professor Harris, for agreeing to be in conversation with us today. Um, And welcome, both of you, to the show. Thank you. Nice to be here. Um, So, you know, before we start talking about this wonderful book, um, we at the New Books Network tend to start out with a biographical question. So since Professor Parry is trained in uh, the British um, Social Anthropology School of Ethnography, I was hoping that you could tell us a little bit about yourself and how you became an anthropologist and how you started studying um, India in particular. Uh, I became uh, uh, an anthropologist by uh, opting to study it at um, undergraduate level uh, way back uh, in the early 1960s, uh, where I was trained in the University of Cambridge, uh, which was then quite a kind of flourishing school of of, um, of anthropology. Um, it was interestingly divided into two antagonistic moieties, the uh, Africanists and the non-Africanists. And I was um, supervised by a very charismatic uh, uh, figure in the department, Edmund Leach. And uh, I knew uh, from very early on that uh, I was not going to go and work in in West Africa uh, and rather arbitrarily decided that I would go and work in India because I needed something to put down on the form in order to apply for a scholarship. Uh, So I got kind of stuck with this, and I've never regretted it. Um, I have regretted in a way that I haven't uh, moved on to study other areas of the world, but once you've invested a bit in a language, unless you're very uh, good at them, the temptations to move around within the same linguistic area are quite strong. Mm Yeah, that, I mean, that's that's an awesome um, story. <laughs> um, well, I mean, I wanted to start talking about the book, um, uh, and it's such an interesting and uh, rich ethnographic text, and it's really inspiring for uh, some of us younger ethnographers to read something like this. Uh, but before we go into it, 
Um, I was hoping that you could tell us how this book was conceived and how the project unfolded. Um, in other words, what is the story of this book? But also, uh, could you tell us a little bit about the significance of a Bhilai steel plant in the developmentalist desires in post-colonial India? Like, what is it about this particular place that is really uh, important and significant for us um, to think through? I'll take the first part of that uh, that that first. I I had previously done other kinds of study in uh, in India as a, a graduate student. I did what was then a conventional uh, village study, and I studied a um, a community in what is now Himachal Pradesh, and it was a a study of caste and kinship. Uh, I wrote that up, and then I switched very much under uh, the influence of uh, the writings of Louis Dumont to uh, studying uh, the sociology of religion, and I did a study in the ancient pilgrimage city of Benares um, uh, on on death, uh, and I was I worked on that for. I can't exactly remember, 10 or 15 years going back and forward. And when I published that, I wanted to move on, do something different. I was not altogether easy with uh, going on writing about religion uh, because I am actually religiously completely unmusical. And um, uh, uh, somehow I felt in uh, not an entirely good conscience writing about something that I'm afraid that I increasingly found I didn't sympathize with. Uh, and uh, what better than the heroic working class? Uh, uh, you know, and the, uh, 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 so I became interested in in um, in industry and um, and in the industrial working class, and partly uh, that was down to the first book of Michael Tausig, um, "The Devil and Commodity Fetishism," and it was partly down to. Um, a student at the LSE who went on to write very different kind of stuff, Chris Penny, uh, who had, was doing a study in Madhya Pradesh of an industrial town. And these two people gave me, you know, a, a kind of excitement about writing about industry because I thought they showed how you could write about industry in a kind of unpredictable and uh, an interesting way. And, and, and that was a kind of major um, inspiration. Uh, I was also somewhat goaded by my long-term mentor and uh, uh, friend of many years, Andre Bette, who kept saying, oh, you know, why don't you now do something about modern India, all this stuff about villages and ancient <laughs> pilgrimage cities and so on. Uh, and I kind of partly took this this to heart. Uh, so really I set out uh, on a kind of reconnaissance trip and went around looking for 
something that caught my imagination. So I went to visit industries in Rajasthan, in Jaipur, and in Kota, uh, and I went to Belai. And anyway, Belai really kind of attracted me, and that's how I wound up there. And the project proliferated and proliferated. Uh, you know, I started out trying to do something on the plant itself. It was very difficult to uh, to get into. So uh, initially I was studying urban neighborhoods, urban busties with a lot of industrial workers. Then I managed to get into the plant then I thought that really, you know, the comparison with private sector industry would be extremely interesting. Uh, and then I thought, well, most of this workforce is actually in the informal sector. Uh, you need to do something on that. So the whole, the whole conception of the thing turned out to be something much more general about the landscape of labor. And I was in the privileged position of uh, being able to go back and forwards. And after the first uh, bout of field work, which was, as I remember, 10 or 11, 11 months, I came back to London and I was landed with being what in local jar jargon is called the convener of the department, basically the head <laughs> of the department. Uh, and Fieldwork was great fun, and convening the department was no fun at all. So, uh, not because of my colleagues who were very nice, but because of the bureaucratic nature of the task and the stupidity of the way in which it was set up. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I found that over the years it was more comfortable to go during vacations back to Belay than to stay in London and fill in forms. <laughs> so uh, the thing went on and on um, and hence it's all been published as a rather sedate pace Johnny tell us about um, uh, about a little bit about Bilai you know uh, Snare's question yes. about uh, Bilai and the developmentalist sort of vision of of Nehruvian India and so on. So um, in uh, in the 19, mid nineteen fifties, Belai was uh, a really tiny little little village. In nineteen fifty five, the Indian government signed an agreement with the Soviet Union uh, to set up a steel plant um, there. This was part of the second five-year plan where um, Prime Minister Nehru uh, basically enthusiastically was building his temples to India's modernity, which were these huge great dam projects like Bakramangal, uh, and the steel plants, one major one of which was Belai, built with Soviet collaboration. Another one was uh, Rokella, built with uh, the aid of the uh, West German government. And then there was Dogapur, uh, uh, built with uh, British help. Uh, Belai 
produced its uh, first steel in 1959. Uh, it, uh, by the mid-1980s, it was employing about over 64,000 workers on its direct payroll, and, of course, many more uh, uh, as a sort of multiplier effect. Um, since that time, the workforce has significantly declined. I began doing field work there in 1993, when the direct uh, on the payroll uh, on the payroll workforce was 55,000. And by 2013, when I was still going back and forward to Belay, it was down to about 28,500. So this is a very large-scale operation, uh, which is about 36 uh, square kilometers of industrial plant. Um, I mean, that tells you something of the, uh, uh, the size of it, but what it doesn't tell you is the, uh, the sort of idealism of uh, um, this project of high modernity that Belay really was uh, as Nehru announced when he came to the uh, uh, to visit the plant in the early days a, a symbol and a portent of uh, the India of the future um, it was very much where in where modern India is going or where or the Nehruvian dream of where it, it should go and quite a lot of what the book tells us is the face of that vision and how it has been really quite deeply internalized by quite a, quite a lot of its um uh, uh its workforce uh particularly those directly employed in the plant who as i'm sure the conversation will reveal a rather a kind of privileged starter of the industrial labor force so you know this uh these ideas about modernity are very strongly internalized by workers the village by antithesis with modern belay is uh, uh you know constructed as a area of darkness and and ignorance uh Ideas about, you know, this affects all sorts of things like ideas that uh, uh, stories and narratives of migration such that people uh, uh, construct their migration stories as big breaks from the, from the past, from this backward ignorant world that they've, uh, they've come from in rural India. They have notions of the person that are very much locate themselves uh, in the events of history, uh, that people, it comes far more naturally to people to talk in terms of events, not structures, to talk in terms of biographical experiences rather than in terms of, of timeless rules. And I think all this is is part of that construction of Belay as a place of the great transformation, if you like. And and Johnny, what 
um, what happened to uh, what should we say the denizens of the the benighted world that the migrants came into? What happened to the uh, the local chattisgaris in the whole process of the construction of of Bilai and setting up the plant and uh, and and what's happened since? Yes, there's quite a lot in the book uh, about this. Um, basically, uh, I think it was 94 villages were uh, displaced. Those who had land compulsorily requisitioned were paid uh, compensation in accordance with uh, the productivity of the land. Uh, they were offered one job per household, uh, but they weren't, unlike uh, other steel cities, they weren't moved on block to new resettlement colonies. So they they kind of um, were dispersed amongst the local population. And they never, unlike in these other places, they never formed a, a, a solitary block of resentment, if you like, um, against the project. So discontent there certainly was, but that discontent was diffused amongst a much wider population than it was in you know, some of the other places, say like uh, Bukhara or uh, um, uh, Durgapur, where there were particular settlements of the displaced people. Um, Johnny, to, I thought that uh, uh, the two overarching arguments uh, of the book um, uh, are, are these, and I'm using more or less your words. The first key argument of the book uh, is that uh, working class politics in Bilai hasn't emerged because the manual labor force is itself deeply divided uh, by class. I mean, I think uh, you're saying pretty directly uh, that, if you will, Marx got it wrong, at least in this, uh, this place and time. Uh, that, I think, is the first major argument of the book as a whole. Um, and there's an implication of this uh, that is, I, I think, of great importance, um, as I think it's become plain in the context of the COVID-19 crisis at the moment, that the manual labour force is itself deeply divided by class, you say, has something significant to do with the fact that many citizenship rights mean so little to those at the bottom of the labour hierarchy. Or as you put it elsewhere, it's the divided interests of different classes of labour that in significant measure puts substantive democracy beyond reach. This argument about citizenship um, for me is a, a very important um, sort of sub uh, subtext, as it were, to the overarching argument about working class politics not having emerged. The second major argument, I think, uh, is that class, you, you argue, has superseded caste as the dominant axis of inequality, uh, though you go on to say inequalities of class 
are lent an aura of inevitability and naturalness uh, by the spirit of hierarchy on, on which the caste order is is founded. Now, if I've if I've, in in your view, reasonably accurately summed up the the as it were overarching arguments of the uh, uh, of of the book, I wonder if we could, uh, you know, go ahead now to sort of. Uh, tease them out, uh, 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 as it were. D- does that does that work? But I think first off, I need to ask you whether you think I've I, I've been fair to you, so to say. Uh, I think that what you said is um, an extremely fair and succinct summary, with just one reservation, and that is that uh, you attribute to me the view that. Marx got it wrong. Um, <laughs> That's me. <laughs> That's my uh, Yes, uh, up to a point. But where he got it wrong, I think, is um, uh, focusing too much on ownership of the means of production, whereas what I'm saying is that what really divides the manual labor force into distinct classes is the degree to which people have, in the case of public sector, permanent public sector workers, some kind of property in their jobs and the extent to which they are completely uh, vulnerable to layoffs and to unemployment um, and so on. And that my belief is that one of the biggest sources of inequality in India is not so much as to whether you, for example, own land or not, but whether um, you have uh, a job that on which you can rely. And if you have a, a, a government job or what is called an alkari, if you're protected by, uh, uh, by the law, if your employment is protected by the law, uh, you are really in possession of an asset that makes you not exactly immune, but gives you uh, very strong safeguards against utter destitution. And utter destitution is what an incredible proportion of the Indian manual workforce otherwise face. Right. So... um... Really, your conceptualization of of class, um, I think, is pretty clear. Owes a owes a great deal to to Weber. Um, Indeed, yeah. You also draw you draw a bit on on David Lockwood's um, uh, own elaborations, I suppose one could say, uh, on a Weberian approach to to class analysis. Is that right? That is absolutely right, and also. Uh, the other figure I would uh, uh, include is um, Tony Giddens on the notion of structuration, because uh, what I'm trying to argue is that you know there is great variation in the extent to which these um, privileged segments of the workforce, these labour aristocracies, become crystallised and closed groups and therefore distinctly separate classes from other kinds of workers employed as contract labour 
or who work in the informal sector. Right. Um, I, as we go on, I think I something I, I sort of wanted to to say at the beginning. Uh, this, I'm now going to put in slightly out of out of place, so to say. But one thing that I wanted to say about the book is that um, it, it, it is one I think of, of relatively few uh, ethnographies which includes both um, shop floor material uh, and an ethnography of the working class uh, of a working class community. Um, relatively few works which bring together um, uh, both the shop floor uh, and the community and that I think is one of the one of the great uh, one of the great strengths uh, of the of, of, of the book um, and in a way that takes me on actually to um, the question that I wanted to uh, to ask next um, which has to do with the the metaphors that were suggested years ago uh, by our our friend, my sometime colleague, uh, Mark Holmstrom. Um, Mark, uh, of course, wrote a, a book on South Indian factory workers, a book mainly about um, permanent workers in the organized sector, um, in which he described the circumstances of those workers as being like a citadel. He described them as, as being in a, in a sort of a, 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 a citadel, very clearly distinct from, uh, from other, uh, other groups of, of workers. Then later, he wrote a more general book um, about uh, industrial work uh, in, in India, and he rather retreated from uh, the metaphor of the citadel and used rather the metaphor of, of a mountain. Um, as he said, the, the permanent workers in the organized sector occupy, as it were, the pastures uh, at, the, uh, at, the top of the, at the top of the mountain. Um, I, I wonder if you'd just like to sort of talk us through a little bit um, those two two metaphors uh, and your own sort of reflections and commentary uh, upon them uh, as a way of, of talking about the, the character of labor, industrial labor in in India. Yes, thank you. Um... Maybe, however, I could start with where you began, which was the fact that this is a, an attempt to not only look at the workplace, but to look at uh, uh, life outside the workplace and to relate the, the two. And I think it goes back to, uh, you know, the question of my particular training in in a particular tradition of anthropology, where one of the kind of central principles was an attempt uh, to hang on to the principle of holism, that everything is related to everything else. So, I mean, there's a book by Michael Burroway that I very much admired, Manufacturing Consent, but he argues that uh, really it's quite irrelevant to workers' uh, behaviour in the factory. 
what goes on outside it and what they bring from outside. Uh, and really, I don't uh, subscribe to that at all. So quite a lot of uh, what I want to show is how these two worlds really are very densely intermeshed. But to uh, get on to the citadel versus the the mountain, I think you uh, put it very succinctly. Uh, and as you know, John, what you haven't let on is that uh, my accusation is that it's not only Mark Holmstrom who has changed <laughs> from uh, uh, one position to 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 the other, but other extremely distinguished uh, writers on Indian labour, namely one John Harris and um, <laughs> uh, and and Jan Bremen. So I'm taking issue. Uh, in a limited way with um, all three of you and no doubt with others, because what I think that you all started out with a much more uh, stark opposition between a privileged segment of, of the workforce and uh, the, the, the kind of rest of it, which really was did suggest that there was a division of class within the manual labor force. And all three of you, Mark in particular with his mountain metaphor, uh, I think retreated on that fundamental insight by watering it down and producing no longer a clear class analysis, but an analysis in terms of social stratification of multiple, a social order made up of multiple gradations. Now, I absolutely agree, you know, there's no question there are multiple gradations. But I think that what the the picture of multiple gradations gives up is the stark and obvious division within the manual workforce between what I've dubbed as those who do, who have knockery, who have these service posts, regular secure employment, and those who do calm, who, who work, who have are paid by the day, who are radically insecure. And, and so the attraction of the citadel to me is that, you know, it... it uh, uh, restores us to looking for a class analysis of what's going on within this big manual workforce and emphasizing the divisions that I believe are absolutely crucial to it Mm -hmm. and why those divisions matter so much is partly political, as you've said in your previous comments that I'm arguing that it's got something important to do with the fact that those at the bottom of the heap cannot claim full citizenship rights and that substantive democracy is so far from being realised. Johnny, I'm, um, I'm pretty, I mean, 
put my cards on the table, as it were. I'm, I'm pretty convinced by by your by your argument, uh, and I, I also respect uh, very much the the criticism that you made of the work that I did in in Coimbatore, uh, many years ago. But there is just one aspect of the Coimbatore work which um, I, I think perhaps you underestimate a, a, a little bit. Um, what I was in, impressed by in particular um, was the ways in which um, the, the permanent wage workers and, and those from uh, among what you refer to as the labouring classes, the ways in which uh, the labour aristocrats, the permanent wage workers and the members of the labouring classes actually come together, as I observed it uh, in parts of, of Coimbatore, um, in, in politics. Um, uh, the, the major, uh, the two major Dravidian political parties uh, in Tamil Nadu then, I think still now, you know, do have uh, sort of party rooms, reading rooms, um, as they were originally. And as I observed it, no, uh, uh, lab- members of the labouring classes and members of the labour aristocracy come together um, in, in, those, uh, in those politics. And it was, it was that which led me to sort of rather uh, w- retreat a little bit from um, the argument that I put earlier about the fairly radical distinction between the permanent wage workers in the organised sector and uh, and the rest, so to say, and, and, and I, this just sort of makes me want to note in really in passing, though it's something that you might want to comment on at some point, just that I thought when I reflect on it, you say actually rather little in the book. Um, about the engagement or not of uh, of workers in their different, uh, whether the the nokri guys or the the mm-hmm. uh, the labouring classes, the, those who are engaged in calm, you say rather little about their engagements in party politics, in electoral politics. Is that because there wasn't much of it to to be observed to be uh, engaged with, or is there some other reason why uh, there's rather little in the book, as I saw it, as I read it anyway, uh, about that aspect of uh, of life in the community uh, outside the, the workplace? And if I could just add to that, I too was curious about how this engagement with party politics has perhaps changed over time, especially maybe with the rise of, um, uh, you know, like BJP um, or other right-wing parties in and around these areas. I was just curious. Yeah, okay, thanks. Um, So uh, uh, to go back to the beginning of what you said, John, um, my, my criticism, I was aware that you felt that the political domain was somewhere where you could show that the labor aristocracy in Coimbatore and what I call the labor class, uh, the people in informal sector employment and so on, come come together. But that was your one example where they do come together. And I wasn't entirely persuaded 
buy it <laughs> for the for 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 the reason that yeah I mean it seems to me that they come together in a context where the Labour aristocrats are basically call all the shots and uh, um, basically direct others and form the political leadership and you know the informal sector workers are maybe I'm wrong about this are the foot foot soldiers so it doesn't didn't seem to me to be an entirely compelling argument that there's no such thing as a, a, a labor aristocracy in Coimbatore so that's why I uh, you know was a little bit skeptical of that um, and I think you're you're in it, that's entirely fair uh, as you as you say there's a lack there was a lack of sort of fine-grained ethnography uh, in the account that I that I gave of what goes on in in five um, working class areas of uh, of, of, of Kwaimbatur. Um so I you know I entirely take your 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 argument I think you know the really in, interesting question is uh, is that of you know what about party politics uh, in, uh, in in Bilai as you observed it, and and Snare's question about uh, the implications of the way in which the BJP has uh, has won so much support in Chhattisgarh generally. Uh, yes, um, I'm afraid that I. I'm going to answer this in a way that is rather kind of, um, uh, I wonder whether I am right to be so dismissive. But my (laughs) whole uh, experience of Belay has been that people were deeply engaged in trades union politics at one point, and that was during the uh, heyday of... Shankar Guhan Yogi and the Chhattisgarh Mukti Morcha and uh, Yogi's incredibly brave attempt to form uh, a serious and radical union amongst contract workers, first of all in the BSB mines and secondly on the private sector industrial estate. That movement was basically suppressed pretty ruthlessly by a combination of the employers, the state, and the conventional trades unions, amongst them particularly uh, the communist-affiliated ASIC unions. And there was more or less sort of internecine warfare between the Chattisgarh Mukti Morcha and and took on the Belai private sector industrial estate. Yogi, as you know, was assassinated. The movement was effectively repressed. And since then, things have been pretty quiescent. So I don't see any very uh, signs of any... Uh, Particularly strong engagement in 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 politics, and certainly not in party politics. I mean, the people that I know are 
I would say, overwhelmingly, completely cynical and turned off by political parties uh, and by the conventional trades, trades unions. And I don't think that, uh, uh, to get to Sneha's uh, question, that has greatly changed over, over time. Though I have to admit that over the time I've been going to Belai, which is from, you know, was roughly the 20 years between 1993 and, say, 2013, I was going there more or less every year. Uh, during that period, you know, there was um, uh, a considerable growth of the local hegemony of the uh, of the BJP. There was, uh, for much of that period, uh, a BJP, Chattisgarh had uh, a state government, which was BJP. Uh, out of uh, six elections, I think, between 1990 and 2013, a BJP uh, MLA was elected from the Belai constituency. Um, but it never seemed to me that it was actually terribly ideological. Uh, you know, it was a certain amount of uh, propaganda against Christian missionization in other parts of, of Chattisgarh. But uh, rapid, rabid BJPism was, um, you know, not, not particularly upfront in my experience. Hmm. It's interesting. I mean, uh, it makes me think that um, the, the importance of, of party politics in in Tamil Nadu certainly is perhaps somewhat, uh, somewhat, somewhat distinctive. But um, I think that, yes, and your experience has also been of Bengal, which is also no yeah, doubt very yeah. different. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, so I think you know there is a big difference between a state like Chhattisgarh and. Uh, Tamil Nadu and uh, Bengal. Yeah, but let's come back if we could just because I think you know for uh, for those who are listening to us, I, I think the your arguments about the distinction between those uh, in uh, service employment, those in nokri, as opposed to those who are engaged in calm, is 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 so important. Um, and I, you know, I wonder perhaps if you could just gloss a little bit uh, the distinction. I mean, it's it was it, very importantly, uh, it's about relationships in the community uh, as well as about uh, access to 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 jobs um, and what's happening uh, in uh, uh, in the economy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so. Um... I mean, uh, okay, so uh, fundamentally these two sets of workers seem to me to be set apart and distinguished in all kinds of ways uh, in terms of uh, lifestyles, in terms of the size of the purse, how much they uh, actually earn, preeminently in terms of their security of employment, uh, they inhabit really extraordinarily different kinds of worlds. That has a fundamental spinover into all other, all sorts of other aspects of, of life. 
And the whole of the last part of the book is about, uh, as it were, uh, is about the life cycle of the uh, of the individual and how uh, the childhood of uh, uh, kids who are born into um, the world of workers who have these secure positions uh, 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 of Nokri are very different from the childhoods of people who uh, are informal sector workers, uh, how suicide patterns in the two groups are very different, um, marriage patterns and household composition and household structures are also characteristically different attitudes to the stability of marriage that uh, the um, uh, the labor elite basically marriages have become very much more stable uh, uh, consequently you know children are far less likely to grow up with half and step siblings because there are much fewer remarriages and so on so you know the texture of kinship is is also very, very different. Um, sorry, I'm uh, uh, I'm no, just I, sort I, of a, yeah. Please, can I can I come back in? Um, <coughs> I think at some point you uh, you suggest that the labour aristocrats, in some in some ways, in some contexts. Uh, may be seen as, as it were, exploiting the the labour of others. This, of course, is in a context in which, in Bilai, as is very general, has has been very generally the case across India, uh, vastly increased reliance on on, uh, on contract labour, contract workers, even within, as in the steel plant in Bilai. Uh, as it were, the high the high places uh, of the of the organised sector. So quite a lot of of the book is actually about uh, uh, about that uh, development of increasing reliance on on, on contract labour. Um, but I think you go so far as to as to argue that the permanent wage force uh, in uh, the steel plant in Belai are in a sense exploiting. Um, the labour uh, of the contract workers. Is that right? Yes, that's absolutely right. And I realise that this might be a bit of a shock to some people. But, um, uh, <laughs> yeah, that's why I thought That indeed is, is um, uh, what I am arguing. Uh, and... Uh, I do want to kind of make a, a stand about. Um, I mean, it is, I think, f- completely self-evident from the ethnography that these two classes of labour, the labour elite, the labour aristocracy, and the so-called labour class, uh, are... Um, absolutely kind of uh, uh, set apart in terms of their political interests and that there is in uh, a number of contexts 
uh, very different material interests that set them that that uh, set them in opposition to each other, and that there is overt competition between them. So uh, th- these two classes of labour are in competition in certain circumstances. Um, arguing, but that there is also a relationship of exploitation between them. And one less important ground for uh, pointing that out is that these aristocrats of labor are, uh, you know, uh, very often they're landowners who are, uh, you know, they're investing in land and that land uh, they are employing agricultural labor on it. They're running moonlighting businesses on, in which they're em, employing mem- uh, members of the informal sector labor force. Uh, sometimes they have domestic people cleaning their houses and so on. These are the women of 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 the labor class. Uh, they're engaged in money lending. Who are they lending money to? the informal sector labour. So that's one aspect of it. But the more important aspect of it is that these labour aristocrats, as I think the book, I hope the book, documents uh, uncontestably, are earning maybe 10 times as much as anybody would ever earn in an informal sector job Ten times as much, perhaps, as a contract labourer in the in the in the plant would would get, and not only are they earning that much more, but they are working very much less. The uh, work regime they're working with a far smaller intensity. Yeah. Ergo, uh, it's these contract labourers who are paid a pittance. And they're doing all the work, who are actually sustaining a whole public sector operation that allows the labour elite to be so comfortably positioned, to earn so much and to work so little. That sounds to me pretty much like what Marx meant by the expropriation of surplus value. Exploitation. Okay. <laughs> uh, I think it's uh, uh, further. F- f- further, yeah. uh, you know, just uh, uh, one small additional piece of evidence for that is that somewhere I quote uh, a very interesting report by um, Nirmal Sengupta from the 1980s who, who had studied. Uh, contract labour in the Rokela steel plant. And one of the things that Sengupta uh, says is that uh, contract labour is most prevalent where the workforce is best organised and the unions are strongest. And he's suggesting that that is obviously because contract labour is in the interests of what I'm calling the labor aristocracy. What interests? That it enables them to go on being paid well for relatively 
relatively undemanding work regimes. Yeah, it's a, it's a strong argument. And I mean, I find found very compelling uh, in, in the book, you know, your account of, of, uh, yeah, of the behavior uh, of the, the permanent workforce in the steel plant uh, towards the uh, towards the contract uh, the contract workers um, you know the powerful sort of image uh, of the of the member of, permanent member of the Bilai uh, workforce who is actually a Dalit um, ordering around the uh, the con- the contract the contract workers and then you know the account of the that you give of the very different uh, social relationships between the uh, amongst the the um, the permanent workers uh, as compared with those amongst uh, the, the the contract labor uh, in the in the plant um, which is sort of pushing me to want to uh, get us towards a discussion about that second major argument uh, that I, I think the book develops about um, the uh, about class superseding caste as the dominant access of inequality. But just be- before uh, we, we get on to that, I just wonder if we could just talk just a little bit uh, about the division uh, amongst manual workers and its uh, its influence on on citizenship um just wondering about sort of struggles over over rights of citizenship in uh, in Bilai. perhaps this is because it's a partic- been a particular interest of, of mine um but i'm just just wondering about you know what you observed of struggles over access to the pds uh or access to other to other public public services, and you know the dis, the differences between those with nokri uh, and the, the guys at the bottom of the heap who are engaged in calm. Um, John, as you uh, know, because you've been kind enough to give me some helpful comments. Uh, I, I've recently been writing up uh, some diaries that my collaborator Ajay, who I hope is not going to get forgotten in this conversation, yeah, by we, the we way, we have done. But Ajay has been sending me. He he has been, um, as you know, John, running a uh, um, lockdown relief operation, giving food uh, to stuck migrant workers who are left stranded uh, and destitute in 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 Belai. and through his work uh you know i've learnt uh, a certain amount about how uh, the pub- the food public distribution system works but actually while doing the field work of course i was aware of people queuing at the uh, at um, uh, the ration shops and so on, uh, but not of any strong political action in relation to it. What I was one kind of engagement that 
uh, I was uh, pretty aware of was uh, tsunamis, uh, that is, uh, people, Dalits, taking out police cases for alleged uh, molestation and atrocities uh, against high-caste people. And that certainly was something that, you know, there was a good deal of activism about that, you know, was pretty visible. Um, Otherwise, I, I, you know, it was a pretty politically quiescent uh, population, it seemed to me, except in the except in as insofar as there was the aftermath of Nyogi's assassination, and you know the cowering of serious trade unionism, uh, and a kind of sense that the bosses had got away with it, and that uh, um, yep. the working class movement was, for the time being, in bad shape. Yeah, I must say, I I find it a pretty depressing picture. Um, uh, it, it it makes one. This is it is not Tamil Nadu or Bengal. Yeah, I guess, I guess, and uh, so we get into questions about you know why there are such variations across the country in terms of yeah, of um, labor labor politics, um, uh, the development of um, of uh, resistance of opposition politics. In, in general, but I guess that these are uh, are big questions which take us uh, somewhat away from the from the book, and I think it probably but, 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 uh, it would help. I, I would be interested to know what you think I might have missed in the way of documenting uh, serious political currents that would give a more uh, optimistic. An activist picture. Well, actually, I mean, as you said, I I have had the pleasure of of reading your introduction to Ajay's diaries uh, of what's been happening in the context of uh, of, of coronavirus, and of course, quite a bit of of those diaries uh, has to do with um, the role of civil society organisations. Uh, like the one that Ajay himself is uh, is uh, so much involved with, and I I guess that one of the sort of wonders that I have in your account of of, of Bilai is actually about um, civil society, <laughs> if you will. Um, what's there? <laughs> Uh, in the way of, of civil society organization, uh, because it, I think, is often through uh, such organizations that um, that people are making uh, those at the bottom of the heap, so to say, are to some extent at least able to make uh, claims, citizenship claims. Um, yeah, so that that's... That's what I, I think perhaps I'm just sort of missing a little bit. 
But yes, you know, okay. Well, I, I mean, something I, I would uh, like to say in this connection is that something you know that has been very upfront for me, uh, and one civil society bit of activism that I am acutely aware of is the uh, People's Union for Civil Liberties. Yeah, and um, uh, what listeners may not know is that uh, my collaborator and research assistant, um, Ajay TG, who has been a very, very important part of this project, was um, uh, arrested in 2008 uh, in connection with uh, um, really a, a short film that he made in defense of uh, Dr. Binayak Sen, who had uh, uh, was is still under trial for um, alleged uh, sedition and uh, giving support to, uh, to the Maoist uh, movement. So, I mean, Ajay's arrest, imprisonment, and subsequent release, you know, were an important window for me on local civil society. And one thing that I can uh, report that is sort of rather directly relevant to the argument of the book is that during the time that Ajay was in jail, all our friends in BSP just refused to have anything to do with him or his family. Uh, They wouldn't speak to me on the phone, you know. Uh, people were seriously kind of frightened. Yeah. And, you know, um, uh, the Blast Steel plant provides wonderful employment, but it does make people really fear losing their jobs, and they are politically cowed. Yeah. It's um, uh, important, I think, to reflect that, you know, Ajay's arrest was in 2008. Um, more recently, in the period of the of the Modi government, many of us have been um, concerned with uh, the arbitrary arrests of activists. Uh, perhaps the most striking. You know, for you and me, Johnny, would be the arrest of uh, Anand Taltunde. Um, Absolutely, yes. Um, but it's you know what happened to Ajay is an important reminder uh, that uh, the way in which uh, a reminder of the way in which previous regimes um, have also used the forces of the of the state to uh, to suppress uh, critical critical voices. Didn't all start with uh, with with Mr. Modi. Even if things have got worse in the in the era of, of Mr. Modi, but I think we should um, uh, move on. And I should, uh, Sneha, let you come in pretty soon into into the discussion because I think that uh, we haven't given much space so far to the second really important, uh, as I saw it, overarching argument of the book, which is about. Uh, the way in which class supersedes caste as the dominant axis of, of inequality. That's obviously a, an extremely important uh, argument. Uh, as you make it, you also, Johnny, 
develop some criticisms, uh, some critical commentaries, perhaps is the way to put it, on the the argument about the substantialization uh, of caste, which has been uh, developed over the last oh, good many years now, really since uh, since Dumont. I wonder if you if you would like to just take a few minutes to uh, to explain your your argument, uh, and then I do do have one or two questions about it. Yeah. Yes. Sure. Um... Uh, let me see if I can do that fairly succinctly. So uh, the first and probably central proposition is that that uh, classes eclipsed caste as a source of identity. Uh, it's um, uh, been eclipsed also as a main determinant of, of life chances. Uh, I think this is rather well illustrated. I hope it's rather well illustrated by the chapter on on childhood, which yep. basically tries to show how very different the childhoods of uh, uh, kids who are uh, the sons and daughters of uh, the labor elite are from those uh, 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 the children of the, the labor cl- uh, class. Right. The uh, most important framework, in a way, is to go back all the way to the beginning of the 20th century when uh, Celestin Bougle uh, tried to outline the main morphological characteristics of the caste system. And he, he said that basically it consists of uh, uh, three key principles – uh, the hierarchy of castes, uh, the division of labor between them and the interdependence that results from it, and their separation, or what he called their mutual repulsion. And the, the general consensus of the literature is that, anyway, since India's independence, the hierarchical aspects of caste have been ideologically done, played, and are less important, that it's no longer in many contexts quite respectable to talk about about hierarchy. The division of labor and interdependence has basically been destroyed by, uh, you know, the market and changes in the economy. And that what we're now left with is Bougle's third principle, separation. That castes continue to be radically set apart from each other, identify themselves as being different, and that one key aspect of that, for example, would be the continued importance of the principle of endogamy, that you can only marry within your own caste. My pitch has been that actually uh, separation in Belai, and I claim that my material documents this, has also been very considerably weakened, uh, and that now uh, is above all weakened by the intrusion of, of, of class, such that now uh, 
economic differentiation within the caste means that people identify more with people in other castes who share their class positioning with them than they identify with members of their own caste who are differentiated from them by class. So that what what we actually get is a, a real decline in separation as well. And um, there's a chapter on marriage, which is absolutely kind of crucial to this, uh, because what it uh, uh, documents is an enormous growth in intercaste marriages, and particularly the uh, particular marriage being uh, 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 rather unstable. The, the first marriage, the so-called primary marriage, is almost always arranged by the parents and is within the caste, but that marriage is in the case of almost all castes in the Chattisgarh hierarchy, extremely unstable, it's likely to break up, and then people are not exactly free, but uh, it's more or less condemned if they make a second partner, and that second partner is not of their own caste. So the result of this is that you get, you know, uh, women who've married men of two or three different castes, and um, uh, the principle is that the children belong, uh, the, the, the semen is preeminent, that the children be, belong to the patriline, so the children are assigned to their father's caste. So half-siblings, for example, might be of a completely different caste from each other, which is not quite one's conventional uh, picture. But anyway, what it, it, it certainly seems to indicate is a sort of breakdown in, in caste separation and the idea that uh, uh, castes are emerging as uh, substantialized blocks. If anything, what has happened in, the, uh, in this instance amongst the local Chetiskar population is that the big divide in the, the local caste order was between a whole range of castes, almost all of them in any village hierarchy, the so-called Hindu castes, and the untouchable Dalit Sudnamis. So that what has significantly happened, both at the, in terms of uh, marriage and also I show in terms of uh, commensality, who will eat with who, is that you now have left, as it were, uh, 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 two blocks, Hindus versus Sudnamis, where the barriers within the Hindu car uh, category have been very severely attenuated. And one can't say that the barriers between Hindus and Sudnamis have grown stronger or even maintained their previous strength, but they're nevertheless still very much there and they appear in starker relief because the other kinds of divisions have uh, got much less less important. And one of the, the arguments of the book is, well, uh, class trumps caste, but that this is uh, rather different in the case of the Sudnamis 
and the tsunamis find it more difficult to, as it were, suspend or transcend caste than uh, do other people. Uh, yeah. So. Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, the the uh, and also that there is the important point that uh, very often through reservations it is your caste that determines your class because it gives you access to reserve posts which are these privileged positions say as a worker in the Belay Belay steel plant so uh, that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and can I maybe just say yep. uh, well, one final thing, and then I'll, I'll, I'll uh, keep quiet. So, uh, tsunami identity is, in a way, a kind of mark of Cain, in a way that other kinds of caste identity are not. But one of the pitches that I'm trying to make is that caste in different contexts and different kinds of setting within Belai, and obviously this is more generalizable, means very different things, that caste in the public sector steel plant is different from caste amongst uh, private sector workers for reasons we could go into if you want, that caste in certain kinds of, in the township and in the new middle class housing colonies is different from caste in these old villages now swallowed up as labour colonies within the town. Uh, and so on. Right. Um, I just just wonder, you know, how how Bilai specific is a lot of. I mean, I mean, I should perhaps preface the remark by saying that you know, I'm. I think your ethnography is is very compelling, and I'm entirely persuaded by your your arguments uh, about the way in which class supersedes caste. But I'm I'm. Just wondering whether there isn't a good deal of sort of Bilai specificity about it. Um, you know, Bilai, it seems to me, uh, you know, really has been quite a melting pot in a way uh, which I think, as you show in your in, in, later in the book, isn't true of the other sort of, in some ways, comparable steel towns. And pretty certainly isn't true. Well, say of of of, of Coimbatore, with which uh, I'm I, I'm familiar. Also, an, an old in, industrial uh, old industrial town. And I'm just sort of wondering whether your your argument doesn't actually suggest underestimation of, of the importance of. What is effectively caste-based differentiation uh, in in other parts of the country and in in other contexts? I mean, I think of of Anirudh Krishna's work on you know who gets into uh, the better engineering colleges and, and uh, business schools, uh, and you know caste really has a, a lot to do with uh, uh, with who gets into those into those places. Uh, and then, uh, on the other hand, um, you know, there's work like Barbara Harris-White's or Jan Bremans, which seems to show um, a, a great deal of, of caste-based 
sort of segment castal region based segmentation um you know in the way in which people uh, access different sorts of of jobs um you know i i i think i remember a conversation with you many years ago about uh, about headloading labor at bus stands or that that's mm. context um where certainly in my experience um you know who can become a headload worker at at a bus stand depends very much on their caste and where they and where they come from uh, and if you you know you don't have that sort of background you don't get that sort of that sort of a job um so i'm 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 just reflecting that it it seems to me that as i say while your argument is very persuasive there are other contexts other parts of the country in which i think uh caste maybe remains much more significant as an axis of of inequality than seems to be the case in 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 bilai do you think i'm talking through the top of my hat or there's something in the argument uh was that addressed to sneha or to me uh <laughs> well to both of you actually <laughs> but why don't you start off and then i'll hand over to sneha there's been far too much yeah yes yeah. so, i mean i'm i'm glad of all that john and um uh, i mean it, it it raises a number of things i i want to say i i'm not quite sure that i'm up to saying them sufficiently articulately but uh, let me at least make a stab at it I think that, that that a lot about what the situation I describe for Belai is specific to Belai but that I'm unembarrassed by that because what really no. interests me is the processes that produce that specificity and I think that those processes are very general sociological processes that are applicable across the board and above all the one that i pick out is is uh, is the notion of structuration um i mean it, it's a, a somewhat unattractive term but uh, uh we're stuck with it um the the extent to which the belai labor aristocracy has become a closed group is i think more extreme than in a great many other contexts and that has to do with all the things that uh, giddens originally uh, pointed out i mean the degree of mobility uh, 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 you know uh, uh, between these uh, uh, different strata, the degree to which they're insulated from each other in terms of residence, workplace, associational life, uh, the extent to which ties of kinship, marriage and friendship are confined within the closed group or s- spill beyond it, the extent to which the group uh, uh, shares a common style of life, common attitudes, and and so on. So I'm saying that that Belai is a, maybe 
unusual. I mean, how unusual I think is is you know very much up for up for grabs. But it may be at one end of the spectrum. But the spectrum is commonly constituted by these different things, and one can make comparisons along those lines, not only within India, but as I try to do right at the end of the book, between different settings, because I argue that the the Nokri Kam distinction basically has its analogues in in Egypt, in Indonesia, in China, and and and, and so on, and one can. Yep discern common processes of closure going on and sometimes the closure relaxes and uh, you get a kind of destructuration and so on. So, uh, you know, and the extent to which class crystallizes obviously means that caste in, in some ways gets less hegemonic. So it may well be that, uh, I mean, I don't have any difficulty with Cast being, you know, my picture of the unim- relative unimportance of caste in Belai being different in other contexts. And in fact, I think I argue when I talk about uh, different steel towns that in some steel towns like Bukaro and I think, uh, uh, I think uh, not a steel town, but in the, in the uh, the leap subramanium study of a Bangalore telephone right. yeah. uh, processing factory. Uh, I argue that you know caste is obviously very much more important on the shop floor, and that that actually has to do with the nature of who is actually recruited into the workforce. In Belai, for example, you've got this incredibly heterogeneous workforce, which makes an awful difference if. Seventy percent of your workers are from the local area. You can basically go on operating as if caste meant something, in a way that you can't when you know your work team consists of, you know, uh, Gujarati, Pasidar, uh, Nonia from Bihar, uh, and Irava from Kerala, uh, uh, and so on and so forth. Where caste really, you don't know how to negotiate it. Yeah. So I, I, I quite believe that there are uh, uh, there may be differences and my plea is not that Belai is India my plea is Belai is an exemplification of principles and processes that are general and that would enable us to make some sense of this variation as for the uh, business of um, I think that's uh, Barbara Harris White uh, and Jan Bremen. Uh, I, I think that's also, a, that um, might be a very good point at which uh, to Mark end Armstrong. our conversation. But, uh, but you know, uh, you... Crossword... <laughs> sorry. Okay, sorry. Hello. Yeah. Oh, I still. Right. Uh, uh, so, can I just uh, finish that? Which is uh, uh, okay, John. Your point is that. I mean, I'm perfectly familiar on um, uh, uh, Raipur railway station. Um, yeah. There are no tsunami uh, uh, porters. Uh, you know, they're capped out, and most of the most of the licensed porters are, I think, tailies, sows. Uh, so we're all kind of familiar with that, and I agree. Um, 
Barbara, Jan, uh, have, uh, and other people too, have very well documented these enclaves of people who uh, have not exactly a monopoly, but seem to, you know, uh, uh, um, significantly fill particular occupational niches. But what I'm less familiar with is statistical data that is done the other way around, which basically says, let's take 200 people, quotes, labor class people, and see what occupations they've done over the last uh, 20 years. And you're, you will find anyway in Belai, and I suspect elsewhere, that if you do it that way around, you'll find that there is actually a very considerable mobility between, say, being a porter in a vegetable market and being a rickshaw waller and so on, in a way that there isn't that mobility between being a porter in a vegetable market and having Sakari Nokri, a government, a regular government job. Yep. Sorry, I've drowned on for no, no. I think I mean these are these are very very important points. I think um, about the argument uh, as a as a whole, and you know, I just want to, I suppose, uh, underline what you were saying about the processes uh, that you know you're not that Bila exemplifies. Uh, processes of structuration working out in in particular particular ways. Those processes will work out in in a in in, in different ways in other contexts. Uh, um, these, I think, are are very important arguments that you develop very well in the in the book. Snare. Uh, yeah. Um, so, you know, as someone who has grown up in uh, a government housing colony, uh, my dad works for a government organization, so I've um, grown up in these colonies. And I was very intrigued by your arguments and observations about how the provision of housing uh, by the Belay Steel Plant functions somewhat as a disciplinary tactic, perhaps in the service of producing a politically passive workforce. Um, and you show how this is not really straightforward but rests on notions of BSP being like a model employer. Um, and while we were talking about caste and uh, the Satnami Hindu distinctions um, and how this works in um, in like um, outside the shop floor life, I was curious to hear more, I guess, about how caste uh, functions in these housing colonies as well as the bastis. What are the sort of differences in uh, the way the processes of um, class structuration play out um, with these like spatial sort of uh, built environment relations, I guess. Um, and yeah, I would just, I was uh, curious about that. Yeah. Uh, maybe I could start with the, the second part of that, mm-hmm. how caste plays out in uh, the housing colonies. Um, if we're, uh, if we're talking about the, uh, the BSP township, uh, then I think this is really very important that, uh, you know, the housing is allocated by a township housing committee, which is, of course, predictably accused of uh, a good deal of corruption, but who knows? You know, it's pro- corruption is 
often exaggerated as well as concealed. Uh, but, you know, apart from small enclaves of, I can think of one in particular, of sweepers, caste really, people live in the township in a completely jumbled up kind of way. So that your likely to your next door neighbours are likely to be, you know, from a completely different regional ethnicity, about whose caste you know absolutely nothing because it's all completely incomprehensible to you what goes on in Bihar if you, you know, come from Malabar or, you know, what these castes signify. So that uh, you know, caste in the township really doesn't seem to me, none of my experience suggests that, you know, it's a particularly big deal, except when, you know, uh, young people get off together and it turns out that the uh, the Dalit boy has got off with the, uh, the, Brahmin, the Brahmin girl. Uh, but even then, reactions are great deal more temperate than one would expect from many other Indian uh, Indian contexts. The there's the more kind of abstract. Uh, uh, sorry, so that that that's the BSP township. I mean, I've also lived in bits of sort of lower middle class housing in Belai, which are you know these new housing colonies. And one of them uh, that I lived in for a time, uh, you know, it started out uh, being plots of land bought by uh, uh, bought by Malayalis and bought by Bengalis. Uh, but after, you know, a couple of decades, people had sold up, moved out and so on. So... You know, the, those ethnic enclaves have been completely kind of disrupted. Uh, so again, my experience of that kind of uh, world of Belai is that caste is uh, not all that significant. And I remember in that particular uh, 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 particular neighbourhood actually once asking a rather... Uh, tactless question of uh, uh, my next door neighbor about about uh, somebody's caste and uh, you know a look of you know I, I might have been asking you know an American family about incest in the family you know sort of uh, anyway a, a simulated horror that such things should be considered at all Mm-hmm. Uh, which you know is part of the spirit of it. Um, that 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 there is this strong contradiction with regard to uh, the Belay Steel Plants provision of housing, which is that you know its provision of housing was very much part of its its mission to be a model employer, not only in terms of health and safety at work and, you know, providing the sports grounds and um, and all the rest of it, but providing uh, a, a 
a decent quality of, of housing, which indeed it has done. But that housing has actually always been run by the company. And so there's been no, you know, local democracy about it. So th this model employer, which is supposed to produce uh, model citizens, is actually not producing model citizens. It's producing people who are kind of completely politically passive because they never have to, you know, engage at all about, you know, how the roads are maintained or the water supply uh, improved or whatever. It's done by the company. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. Um, I remember that while growing up, caste was never quite mentioned in uh, the colonies that I grew up in, but it was always regional identity that became yes. uh, yeah, uh, sources of conflict and also uh, um, religious celebration, I guess. Like if Ganesh Puja was becoming a big thing, people were really worried that the Marathis are having too much of, uh, you know, of a presence in the colony. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, could I uh, come come back come back in? I said I I, I would leave leave. Uh, no, please, <laughs> please do come back in. But, yes, but just one one uh, uh, looking at, at my own notes. Uh, uh, I found you know really very interesting uh, and striking uh, in in the book, and that's the the argument about how. Uh, views of the status of, of women and their sexuality uh, influences the construction of, uh, of, of class. Um, uh, and I, I think it would be a shame if we didn't uh, give you a chance, Johnny, to talk a little bit about, about that part of the, uh, of the argument, yeah? Right. Um, well, boldly, the proposition is that uh, uh, for w the industrial employment in Belay is very, very masculine. Uh, the Belay uh, steel plant workforce itself, apart from in things like its hospital, its teaching and so on, is uh, almost exclusively male. Uh, the big companies on the industrial estate, the private sector country companies, also it's a male workforce. So what's open to uh, to women amongst uh, uh, the kind of man of manual labour force type type households? Well, the respectable ones, uh, like uh, who can afford it, like the the wives and daughters of uh, Belay steel plant workers are basically at home. <clears throat> and they're at home because working outside the home is on the whole not respectable. And it's not respectable because the main kinds of jobs that they can get are things like construction site labour, labour on the roads, uh, 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 Contract cleaning in the in in the steel plant, that's one. Domestic service is another, and then a large number of them are engaged as binniwali, uh, which means that they're scavengers. They're doing recycling work. They're going around the streets and alleys and so on, picking up 
plastic bags and old tennis old, old trainers and so on and so forth and recycling them to scrap scrap merchants the main uh, uh, part of this <clears throat> argument was constructed on the basis of the ethnography of construction site workers and what was sort of important about this is that uh, these women were subject to a great deal of male predation, male sexual predation. Some of them were, uh, you know, having spontaneous affairs with people who were, uh, you know, work colleagues, but quite a lot of them were being expected to have affairs with people above them you know, contractors and supervisors and house owners and and so on, that this uh, is a major, major reason why this reputation for being sexually available is a major reason why these women are regarded as being, uh, being low and inferior their lowness and inferiority very much spills over to the men as well, who are, you know, proved to be incapable of looking out, controlling them properly or looking after them properly. Probably the reason is that they have to go out to work because they simply can't make ends meet otherwise, but that's the way it's, it's constructed. So that sexuality, the sexuality of these labor class women is becomes proof of the inferiority of the labor class as a whole. And the argument is that what gives this a particular salience are the values of caste, which are, as it were, carried over into the domain of class. And those values of caste are that the purity of women is an extremely big deal in order to maintain the purity of, of, of caste. Uh, and so purity, as it were, is uh, women's sexual availability and their, their sexual purity is an absolutely key signifier of rank and uh, uh, of uh, status or the lack of status. And so uh, the sexuality of women in the workplace is a key mechanism by which caste is a, a class, sorry, yeah. is ideologically reproduced. Is that roughly clear? Yeah, that that's actually fantastic. And um, I too was curious about this. And um, this is really uh, succinctly um, summarized uh, before uh, you know before uh, we end the discussion of the book I would would love to know what what it was like to collaborate with Ajay TG and how your collaboration has evolved over the, over the years but also how um, your ethnographic approaches have changed over time um, in a rapidly changing country I guess yeah Yes, well, um, uh, I'm more comfortable uh, answering the first part of that than sure. the second. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, Ajay has been uh, 
you know, a really important part of this study. I mean, mm -hmm. um, uh, he's partly to blame, I have to say, for the fact that it's gone on and on and on because it's been <laughs> such fun working working with him. Uh, but, you know, the ethnography owes an awful lot to uh, to him. And it's not just that he's, you know, helped me with the ethnography, but, you know, I've suggested ways of thinking about it. He has no training at all in anthropology or sociology. and uh, But, I, you know, I, uh, in our both rather inferior versions of Hindi, we managed to discuss uh, things like structuration, <laughs> Uh, uh, um, uh, you know, he's made uh, often very, very acute uh, uh, comments. So I, I really can't say how grateful I am uh, to mm -hmm. for his uh, input. And, you know, I, I've described uh, in an article I wrote for Focal, uh, which is really about his arrest, how we first met and completely by serendipity and uh, mm -hmm. uh, he started taking me around and he was um, uh, doing this appalling job for a Calcutta gearbox manufacturer and uh, hated it and <laughs> started working for me part-time. And just we've, uh, whenever I've gone back to Belai, if he's been free, uh, you know, he's made time for me, he's gone on being associated with the, with the project. Mm -hmm. um, as for how my ethnographic approach has changed over time, uh, I mean, I'm not sure that I'm terribly conscious that, that it, mm -hmm. I, I'm very conscious that, you know, I started the Belay study in September 1993, and I thought that... Uh, you know, at least by 1998, I would be shot of it. You know? <laughs> right. uh, I've gone on going, going, going back there. So uh, a certain sort of, uh, mind you, I went back a lot to Benares, but uh, so a certain sort of tolerance of extending it over over mm -hmm. time, and a certain kind of consciousness, both of the advantages of that. It is just amazing. How, when you already know people quite well, you can show up and within the first 24 hours you can have filled a notebook with the latest wonderfully interesting <laughs> gossip, you know. Right. Um, yeah. You know, which is terribly uh, interesting and, 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 and kind of gratifying. So, uh, you know, the, lo the long-term nature of the fieldwork has real advantages but it has real disadvantages as well, which is that, uh, you know, your subject matter keeps changing under your feet. Mm. Uh, and it's it's like uh, the English metaphor of painting the fourth bridge, is it, John? That's right. Where... Yeah, a fourth bridge job. Yes, you, you took on a fourth bridge job because, of course, just as the fourth bridge starts rusting as soon as the paintwork's finished, uh, you know, you were, you know, Bilai was always changing as you were, <laughs> were, were studying. Yeah. So, um, Sneha, perhaps you, you, you'd um, say in what way you would expect 
I mean, what sort of answer would you have expected to this question? How has your ethnographic approach changed? I mean, you know, I've got older, I've got more ancient. It means that, <laughs> you know, it means actually it does mean important things. Yeah. It yeah. means yeah. that uh, it means that it's much easier now for me to talk to women than it was mm-hmm. when mm-hmm. I was, uh, yeah. you know, a 23-year-old graduate student and... Um, I mean that's that's actually exactly um, I guess what um, I was looking for in a sense that how have people started seeing you differently um, uh, with time, but also maybe uh, displacing the importance uh, of a face-to-face interaction to how your field site was mediated to you through Ajay's communication and correspondence, and how maybe that helped you see things differently. Um, I was just curious to know um, how that. Uh, I guess how you were studying uh, Belay Steel Plant um, after this long-term fieldwork that you were able to do as a grad student. I know that with uh, uh, with being a faculty a member, you have other responsibilities. Perhaps going away to Belay for like long chunks of time is not that practical anymore. So, yeah, um, I have you know I've got a terrific amount out of what Ajay has gleaned to tell me. Um, but I've always sort of felt that I can't intuitively and imaginatively grasp it mm-hmm. simply secondhand. And that, so, for example, I mean, Ajay did an awful lot of survey work for me, just, you know, uh, counting households and so on. Mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. I always felt that it was necessary to do at least a proportion of that in these different busties myself to get a kind of feeling of it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, and that comes through uh, clearly, absolutely. Um, yeah. Well, um, anyway, uh, I, before we let you go, I, I just realized that it's been like an hour and 45 minutes and it was such an engaging conversation that I completely lost track of time. But before I, I let you both go, I would love to know what you're working on right now and um, what are the thoughts that uh, are occupying you research-wise during our lockdown and shelter-in-place situations. <laughs> yeah, well, since I finished the book, which was actually, I'm trying to remember, I mean, now getting on for two, two years ago, it's taken some time to to come out. I, I've uh, uh, had a period of not very good health, which has taken up a lot of time, but I'm now back on course. And what have I been doing? I mean, I've been doing small things. The latest two things I've done is uh, write an introduction to these uh, COVID lockdown diaries of Ajay's that have gone, gone up online and a short comment for a debate in contributions to Indian sociology. And what I'm, you know, having spent a lot of time writing in the last few years, I find I've got shamefully out of date with lots of reading. And what I've been trying to do, um, above all, is trying to read about caste in relation to race and, uh, uh, and comparative stuff on affirmative action. So I've been reading quite a lot of uh, uh, American um, studies on 
on race. Um, and I have a, my ambition over the next year is to, rather well, modest ambition, is to be able to produce uh, two or even possibly three articles relating to affirmative action politic, policies and their political implications and something on caste and race. I may say I, uh, I started this interest before it became so very distressingly and hotly yeah. topical in the last few weeks. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Not just a response to what's been happening over the last couple of weeks, yeah. Yeah. Hey. Uh, Professor Harris, what are you, what are you well, working you know, on? I, uh, Johnny mentioned, uh, unfortunately, how a uh, period of ill health uh, has occupied a good bit of his time uh, in the mm -hmm. recent past. You know, life has a way of sort of getting in the way of things one wants to do. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. you know, I too have some personal circumstances which mean that I, I, I can't... Uh, any longer uh, go to India to carry on extended periods of, of fieldwork, which I much regret because I, uh, like Johnny, I think, actually very much enjoy uh, doing uh, doing fieldwork. So I do regret mm -hmm. that I've not been able to, uh, to go back uh, to do uh, ethnographic fieldwork for quite some time. But I, mm -hmm. I, I hope that I may be able to get back to doing some work with friends in, in Delhi uh, on uh, youth and and politics, picking up the threads of studies we began some some years ago. Otherwise, mm -hmm. um, I, you mentioned you know what are we doing in this period of uh, of coronavirus? Mm -hmm. Well, I, mm -hmm. I got quite heavily involved in trying to follow what's been going on in in India in the context of of COVID nineteen uh, and uh, writing a bit about. A bit about that, and I think something I, I would like to continue to uh, to to work on. Um, and it's obviously very important, and it, I think it's extremely interesting in in, in terms of you know, the ways in which it reflects upon processes of change in Indian politics and Indian society. Yeah, so that's where I'm at now. Well, that's uh, wonderful. I hope. Uh... I can read some of uh, both of your uh, work in the near future, maybe um, in a few months. Um, and yeah, thank you so much for taking time out and uh, chatting with us today. I'm sure the listeners uh, would have learned a great deal uh, from a discussion of this uh, really wonderful uh, book. And um, I certainly feel a lot more intellectually enriched um, this uh, Friday morning. So thank you. Thank you very much. It's been yeah. enjoyable. All right. Um, thank you. And uh, everyone, hope you're keeping safe and staying healthy and see you on yet another episode of our new books in anthropology. Mm -hmm.